Well, remain standing as you're able. Uh, this morning we have a really special uh, man for you in Ben Seneker. Some of you may recognize that name. Ben is uh, the guy that we have called to be our church planter at Grace Hill, and him and his family have joined us since about mid-January-ish, early January, early January, sometime around there, maybe even December. Sometime in the snowy, well, it hasn't been that snowy this winter, but sometime in the winter. But Ben's come uh, here this morning. We invited him as a missions committee to, to share with us, because we think it'd be a really great opportunity to hear from one of our own. What's, what is Ben's heart for missions and for outreach, for local missions in particular, and church planting even more specifically? And so Ben has been preparing a message for us with those things in mind and it'll be really great for us to start off this week hearing and thinking about what is God's mission for the local church? What does church planting look like? What does local outreach look like? I'm really excited to hear from Ben this morning. With those things in mind, let's hear the scripture that God has put on Ben's heart. You can see there in your bulletin, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for the way that you are stirring amongst us as a people. We're excited to hear the ways in which you've been stirring Ben's heart in particular, the way that you've led him here to Grand Rapids and, and church planting through Grace Hill. You know, give Ben the, the words to, to share that message. Help us to see his heart as it reflects your heart for mission. Lord, be at work in our minds and our own hearts as we consider the things of the scriptures that you've given to us. Be with us this morning. Be with Ben, our brother. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. What a joy it is to be with you all this morning. Um, as you heard, my name is Ben. Uh, my family and I did move up here uh, about a month and a half ago from North Carolina. Um, since then, we've been getting settled, we've been getting unpacked, um, finding out what the rhythms are of Grand Rapids of the Midwest. I'm from North Carolina, my wife is from New Jersey, and now we've moved to the Midwest. So this is an entirely new region of the country for us. 
Um, and we've been trying to learn uh, what it's like to live uh, in this part of the country, uh, live in Grand Rapids, and help that then determine what does ministry look like here. But it's a joy to be with you all. This has been something that we've been um, praying for, preparing for, uh, honestly, for years. Uh, Grand Rapids uh, came on the radar for us last summer. Um, and, and then since then, we've been uh, in talks with, with Andrew and Daniel, of course, and everyone else on the leadership. Um, but it's just it's, it's wonderful to be here and to be doing church planting. Now, church planting, um, I, I will just right out of the gate say that this is, it, it tends to be a topic or uh, an area of the kingdom that is a little bit of a gray area for some. Um, if you've been around here for a while, I have heard that church planting has been in the DNA for a long time. So if you've been around, I would imagine that you're, you're fairly familiar with what it is, what it isn't. Um, but if you're relatively new to this church, or if you haven't been around a church involved in church planting, or if you haven't been part of a plant, it still might be a little bit of a gray area. It was for me. We got, we got involved in uh, our first church plant 12 years ago. Before then, I hadn't really even thought about planting. I thought the churches that were there are the churches, and you just choose one, and that's where you go. Um, all the churches were, like, the, the quota had been met. That's sort of my thinking, and so I, I needed to be part of a church plant to just change my, change my thinking of what, what church is, the body of Christ, ecclesiology, all of this needed to be changed. Um, we were meeting in a uh, pizzeria on Sunday afternoons. That was, it, was, it was closed, because that would have been awkward if the pizzeria was... Uh, but the owners let us stay there, and, and we, uh, and, and, but I remember thinking, it was so, still so new to me, I remember thinking, this isn't right, like, we're not allowed to be doing this, like, churches, we were supposed to be in a big stone building with at least one um, stained glass window, it wasn't Presbyterian at the time, um, we needed some stained glass windows for it to be church, and so it, my whole thinking of what church is um, uh, changed uh, to become more biblical, honestly. Um, but then I also, what was interesting about the church plant is that, that first one, is that I had gifts that I didn't know I had, and my, and my wife too. And that's one, one of the things that really made me start to fall in love with church planting is because you are stretched and pulled in so many different ways that gifts that you have are brought out. I was happily teaching high school history at that time. I was a high school teacher. I coached baseball. That was my thing. That's what I was going to retire doing, and then I joined a church plant. And through about a four-year period of that plant, and then about another couple years at the next plant, it became very clear that God was calling me into not just the ministry, but into church planting. So the lesson is that if you ever get involved in church planting, you're probably going to go into the ministry. In one form or another, just kind of count on it. I love whenever I start talk about my story in church planting, I do say I'm a product of a plant. This was not at all on my radar. I was a history teacher. Uh, and yet, here I am in sunny Grand Rapids, <laughs> planting a church. But I hope this morning uh, provides, I hope I'm able to provide some clarity about what, what church planting is, what, is the, what the, the motivation is, um, the biblical mandate for it, um, and what we're doing at, at Grace Hill. 
Um, the, the passage, though, that, that uh, the Lord did lead me to for, for this morning might at first glance seem a little bit odd uh, to kick off um, a missions festival. Uh, Paul is being accused of being dishonest. He is, uh, he's, he's, ba- he's, he's being um, attacked verbally, and so now he's having to write a response. And so this is the, this is, this is the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. Um, Paul, so to kind of to start, start to set it up, Paul uh, had planted this church in Thessalonica. He had moved on to another uh, city to plant another church, and then he started to hear that... Um, uh, some accusations were being leveled against him. So he writes this letter in response to that. And one of the main things that Paul mentions in this passage, one of the main points that he makes is that when we are thinking about planting churches, when we're thinking about missions, we have got to be honest. We have to do so with integrity, with conviction, and not all these things that people were claiming he was doing, trying to mislead. That then got me thinking about this, this, this phrase I had in my head, the importance of being earnest as we do missions, which then, of course, led me to Oscar Wilde. If you know this 19th century Irish poet, playwright, and author, he wrote a play called The Importance of Being Earnest. I hadn't read it before this week, but I couldn't get that phrase out of my head, so I went to the library, checked it out, read it that night. Highly recommend it. If you haven't, it's a short read. It's an easy read. Um, I was afraid I was going to wake my family up laughing. Not uncontrollably, not like an annoying way, but it w- I was laughing. It was funny. And I, I recommend it to you. So if you, if you are familiar with it, just kind of hang out for a second. But if you've never heard of this play, um, uh, indulge me for just a couple moments because it really is great. And it actually gets us thinking really about this passage, I promise. There's a main character named Jack. He lives out in the country, and he is about 30 years old or so, and he is a responsible, dependable, moral young man. He's taking care of his adopted niece. Everything's going really well for him and all this. Well, Jack lives a double life. He goes into London periodically to visit his brother. Doesn't have a brother, but he goes to London. He assumes this other identity, and he is wild, partying, staying out all night. He even goes by a different name, Ernest. In the country, he's Jack. In the city, he's Ernest. And he just lives it up. Different set of friends, wild and crazy, all this. Well, as much as I would love to just recount the entire play for you, uh, I do have a sermon to preach. But here's the deal. Jack gets caught. His friends find out that he's living this double life, and they confront him, and they say, who are you, man? They feel betrayed. We don't even know you. You're over here, you're this person, you're over here, this person. The, the joke with Oscar Wilde and the title is that while Jack was being earnest, E-A-R-N-E-S-T, he wasn't being earnest at all. While he was being earnest, he wasn't being earnest. You take that same word, spell it differently, one's an adjective, one's a man's name. While he was earnest, he wasn't being earnest. And they're just, his friends are feeling betrayed and they're attacking him and he's having to defend himself. Now Paul... Here's the transition. Paul, in a similar way, is facing accusations. Who are you? You just come into town. You start doing all this, but who are you? Now, Paul obviously is not 
Jack. He is the same. He is, he is preaching every city with integrity, with honesty. He's being earnest in every city he goes to. E-A-R-N-S-T. And yet he's facing these accusations. He's having to respond to them and say, no, 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 that's not how it was. And we can read, if, if we can look with me, starting at verse 3, we can see some of the accusations that were being made against him by his responses. In verse 3, he says that their appeal, when they were in Thessalonica, their appeal did not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. They weren't trying to deceive them. Verse 4, they were not out to please man, but God. Verse 5, they didn't come to flatter them. The thinking there is being sort of smooth talkers and kind of coerce them into doing something they didn't want to do. They weren't there to flatter. They weren't greedy. They weren't in it for money. And then verse 6, they were not seeking any sort of glory or praise from people. You can picture Paul, as he's writing this, thinking through, sort of systematically thinking through all these accusations against him and his team when they were there planting the church. And he has a response for each one, for each one of the accusations. He's like, no, that's not how it was. And then he even invites the Thessalonians into the conversation saying, don't you remember? You know, you were there. Did we act this way? Were we deceptive? Were we greedy? Did we coerce you? No. We were gentle. Like a mother nursing her child, we were tender with you. And when we think about missions, when we think about planting churches, we have a lot to learn from this passage. A tenderness as we go about our work. Being earnest as we go about our work. But at the same time, realizing like with Paul, that there's a chance they're going to face opposition. There's actually a really good chance we're going to face opposition. Our character might be attacked. Our integrity might be intact. Accusations might come up of all kinds of things, trying to coerce people. We're in it for the money. We're just trying to please people. Whatever it is. It's possible for us to face these same accusations. Now, aren't you pumped up for planting and missions? Isn't this a great passage to get you ready? Persecution! But it's, but it's a possible, I'm just trying to be earnest. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a, a very real possibility that if entering into this type of work that we're all called to, being on mission, but especially with church planting, we're going to face opposition. We have an enemy very much wants to sow discord, division, doubt. We also have a world that uh, is becoming increasingly hostile to this message, yeah? I mean, I don't think we should start to say, well, it's worse for us than it was for Paul. I don't, I don't like going down those roads. But we do face some, some, some challenges. For us in the West, living when we do, it's, it's particular, our, our particular variety of challenge comes in light of post-modernity. We're not really in the throes of it anymore, but its, it's effects are still with us, especially in cities. And this is well documented. This isn't just me saying, but, but, but the, the idea that objective truth cannot be known 
And even if, does, even if objective truth does exist somewhere outside of us, there's no way that we can fully, purely know it because of our own experiences and our own biases and all this will, would, would distort it. So in one sense, we're living in the effects of that, that objective truth, why bother? But at the same time, we're living in the age of information where we can know anything. Just look it up. So there's a tension there. Can't know anything. Can't know anything really. Age of information, you can know anything. Just look it up and then tweet about it. And then where these, things, where these two ideas collide is where we are. And we see this manifest itself in this thinking that, well, since, since nothing is truly known, but since I can know anything, I will just have my truth. You have your truth. Don't try to impose your truth on me. I won't impose my truth on you. And let's just coexist. Even if our truths contradict each other. And it's into this that we are to go. It's into this that we are to take the gospel. Uh-huh. <laughs> we are. How in the world do we do that? If we have an enemy who's against us, if we have a very skeptical, uh, isolated, uh, confused world, you know your truth, I know mine, let's not impose it on each other. How then are we to do church planting? How are we to do it in cities where all these ideas are coming together and, 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 and twirling about? How are we to do this? Well, here's the deal. It's actually simple. It's not at all easy, but it's simple. And the answer for us we see here in verse 8. So if you could please look with me at verse 8. Let me read it again. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we, and this is Paul and his companions when they were in Thessalonica, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That's it. When you think about Grace Hill and what we're doing with the plant, when we think about how you are going to be on mission here in Grand Rapids or your communities, that's it. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I'm usually the worst at coming up with sermon titles. I'm just bad at it. Some pastors I know spend hours, it seems, coming up with very clever, uh, impressive sermon titles. I usually just use a phrase from the passage, just kind of tack it on, let's go. Um, maybe I need to grow in that, I don't know. But I have to say I'm quite proud of today's sermon title. <laughs> when it came to me, I was just like, that's awesome, yes. And maybe I was inspired by Oscar Wilde, I don't know. But there's a little bit of a play on the, the title, share the gospel with yourself. What I mean by that are two things. Number one, we need to share the gospel with ourselves. And this phrase, I don't know if you've heard it, it's really popular, Jack Miller circles, but preach the gospel to yourself. And I'll talk about that more in just a second. But share the gospel with yourself, remind yourself who you are in Christ. But then also, as we see in verse 8, share the gospel along with yourself. 
Share the message, share yourself with it. Or may the message of the gospel be shared through the sharing of yourselves. It's not easy, but it's simple. And I really feel like verse 8 is that call for us to do this when we think about church planting and being on mission. What does it mean to preach the gospel to yourself? It's, it's again this idea that we forget who we are in Christ. That we are in Christ will never change. That's secure. And yet, we forget. Perhaps even today on the drive home, you're going to forget of who you are in Christ. This, for me, manifests itself by me spiraling usually in how I react to things happening in my life. Going back to the thinking that I'm a spiritual orphan, who I am at my deepest core, my value, my worth is up to me to create and sustain. And then I do that through the acceptance and affirmation from others, not God. And I spiral And it's usually my wife who says, Ben, you're forgetting who you are. Preach the gospel to yourself. And is it a magic fix? No. But it gets me back on the the track that I need to be to remind me, remind myself who I am and that I am secure in him. And that my ultimate foundation, identity, worth, value, all of that is in him. If we are to do mission... If we are to share ourselves as we're on mission, we need to begin there. Reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ and the security that comes with that. When we do that, we are able to look up, we're able to look out, and we're able to engage. And then share the gospel along with ourselves. The word for selves can be translated as souls. Paul and his companions shared their souls with the people in Thessalonica. This is much deeper than mere likes and dislikes. Question for you, have you ever done that? Have you ever shared your soul with someone? I imagine you have. Close friend, uh, spouse, family member, whomever, you get to the point in the relationship where the affections for one another are mutual, trust has been built, and you're able to freely bear your soul with that person. And it's a beautiful thing when someone does that to you, when they open up. They're entering in. They're allowing you to enter in their mess, to walk with them through whatever it is. To admit, I don't have the answers, but I will walk with you in the midst of this. That's what it means to share your soul. That's what Paul was doing with those in Thessalonica. Making themselves vulnerable. You have to be wise. You have to do this winsomely, of course. Don't be an exhibitionist. Don't go in just for the sake of shock value, but to really 
invite someone in. The difference there is if you just start sharing your soul, sharing your soul just to unload on someone, that's one thing. But to do so, to then invite someone in, to walk with you through it, is very, very different. And that's what we're, we're, we're seeing here. This is a, a mutual coming together and walking together. This is the, the example Paul has for us as we think about missions, to go out and seek the lost in this way. We cannot apply the field of dreams methods uh, or method to church planting. I don't know if you know this movie, Field of Dreams, came out a long time ago about uh, th- that phrase, like, if you build it, he will come. This guy builds this incredible baseball field and a bunch of, like, baseball player ghosts come and play. I never really understood the plot to that movie. Uh, I remember liking it. I'm a baseball guy, and it was a beautiful, beautiful baseball field. When the lights come on at night, it's just absolutely magical. That's a little taste of heaven for me. But I never really got the plot. But this idea that if you build it, he will come. We cannot apply that thinking with church planting, especially not in cities, especially not in today's culture. That if we just create a space, and if they can only hear me preach, if they could only hear our music, if they could only uh, experience our programs, if they could only taste our gourmet hipster roasted coffee, then they'll come. No, they won't. You need music that seeks excellence. You need to communicate the gospel well. You need to have some infrastructure in place for discipleship and care for the kiddos. And you definitely need hipster coffee. We're not barbarians. (laughs) But you can't lead with that. You can't just do that and expect people to show up. You have to go to them. Share the gospel with ourselves reminding ourselves that we're secure in Christ, and then we share the gospel along with ourselves as we move out. How do we do that? How do you share the gospel along with yourself? Again, it's simple, but it's not easy. Love the person in front of you. Love the person in front of you. Not easy, but it's simple. In verse 8, Paul says that he was affectionately desirous of the people. His affections were stirred for them. His holy affections were stirred. They were dear to him. Love the person in front of you. It's not complicated. In fact, it's the most basic command the Lord gives us is the most basic expression of what you believe. The most basic expression of the Christian faith. Love the person in front of you. How do we love the person in front of you? Begin by seeing them. You think about missions, you think about church planting, you think about what we're doing downtown, Grand Rapids. Begin by seeing the people that you will then love. How many people do we interact with daily? Be it someone next to us at a traffic light, be it someone we're standing in line with, be it someone who's taking our order, be it your kids, teachers, whatever, whoever. 
the number of people we interact with, and how many people do we not see? We look past them, we look over them, we look through them, we don't see them. Once you see them, it's easier to love them. Seeing them as an image bearer of God, seeing this person as someone for whom Christ died, It's amazing how that changes that we see, how we see people, that this is a human being with dignity and worth, the climax of God's creation. You see them, you begin to love them, you have affections, holy affections for them. And then you ask them how they're doing. Then you listen to their response. You're entering in. Again, you do so with wisdom, you do so with prudence, you do so on mission, you don't do so so that you can then turn the conversation back to you immediately and you know, take the conversation someplace else. You love them. One of the things I do as a church planter is trying to, especially only been here five weeks or whatever, is to learn the rhythms of Grand Rapids. I gotta, I gotta decide where the marketplace is, where the markets are, where do people gather. And I'm going to just share with you one little example of how I do the work of a church planter. I'm going to ask that you adapt this to your schedule, your life. Um, my schedule is unique. I get it. Um, if I worked a nine to five, it would look very, very different. But being on mission, being a church planner in Grand Rapids, the first thing, one of the things I'm doing is um, creating my own rhythm and my own um, patterns through the week, going places. Um, I call this my coffee shop circuit. I've, I've chosen four coffee shops downtown, um, and I try to go there with regularity, um, try for the same day, roughly the same time. Um, so that I can begin to follow the rhythms of others. I stay away from Christian coffee shops. There are some you walk in and you can just tell that this is a Bible study. Um, this is not a coffee shop. Um, and, and being who I am as a church planter, I, I am seeking the sick, not the healthy. And so I, I, I buy a coffee, I hang out for a bit, but I want to find some other coffee shops. I think one of the ways God has blessed me uh, for this role is I feel very, very comfortable around very, very strange people. I'm from Asheville. I don't know if any of you have any idea what Asheville is, but it is a weird city. I was a barefoot hippie running around that city when I was in, teenager, in my teenage years. I was a weirdo. Um, I'm comfortable around sort of the marginalized, and I love finding those little pockets of people like me in Grand Rapids. I feel very comfortable around them. Anyway, I'm going to these different coffee shops and I'm starting to create a rhythm, seeing the same people and eventually being able to talk to them, ask them how they're doing. And one of the things, I again, this is what I'm doing. You make it your own. But even if it's five degrees outside, someone who's got tats will be wearing a T-shirt. And that's an invitation for you to ask them about a tattoo. Again, this is just something that I do. 
A tattoo is something that's very personal to that person, something that usually comes from their past, and yet they have it displayed for the world to see. And you have to be cool about it. You just say, tell me about your tattoo. What's that about? Not, what is that? (laughs) Tell me about your tattoo. Like, what is that? Is that something, I don't know, what's the story behind that? And usually they'll just, I don't know, they get, obviously it's on display. There's an invitation there. Tattoos, I'm telling you, for church planters, for being on mission, dude, there's the door. Whether or not you get freaked out by them or not, doesn't matter. Let's love that person. Let's have affections for them. And let's ask them about that. And your responses may vary. They may shoot you down. I usually, in that moment, respond with, I bet it hurt, though. Did it hurt? Because then you're now allowing them to say, nah, it didn't hurt. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But they're able to kind of, you know. And then, you, you know what happened in that moment? You're creating memory. Next time you see that person, maybe ask them again how they're doing. But what's, what's probably happening is the person is, is saying, I remember that guy. They asked me about this tattoo. They saw me. They engaged with me. And over time, you can then begin to share yourself with them. Reminding yourself who you are, that you're secure in him, you are secure, but then you can then enter in and share yourself, and you can maybe get to the point where, you know what, I'm not doing that well today. I'm struggling with this. And in time, you can get to the place where you can share the gospel. Let me tell you about the one who loves me in spite of my mess, who knows all my mess. Let me tell you about this person. The days of coming in and just, I'm just going to preach the gospel to this coffee shop or wherever, this city. I don't want to say that those days are gone, but the data that is there for church planters and also my personal experience is this takes time. It takes time. The skepticism that's there, and I'm learning about Grand Rapids that a lot of folks have a church background. So there might be a little bit of like deconstruction that needs to happen before you can then, I don't know, reapply the gospel. I don't know. I'm still figuring. I've been here just a few weeks. I don't know. But this is what I'm thinking. Um, That vulnerability piece, I'd also want to mention this. Um, And by the way, when I taught, I taught 90-minute classes, so I'm kind of used to that. So (laughs) church, second service starts at 11. So we got another hour and a half. We're good. Point number two. No. <laughs> but that whole vulnerability thing. So 2017, the Me Too movement, I think is a classic example of what we should pick up on as Christ followers. Uh, the, 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 the Me Too movement, um, probably remember it. It's still kind of going on. But this this. This is a movement fighting sexual harassment and sexual violence. And I found this quote by the, by the woman who started it, uh, the hashtag anyway, started the hashtag Me Too. This was her quote. Ask, she was asked, what were your initial thoughts of starting this? And she says this. The initial purpose was to empower women through empathy and strength in numbers by visibly showing how many women have survived 
sexual harassment. Let me say that one again because it's a great quote. Initial purpose was to empower women through empathy and strengthen numbers by visibly showing how many women had survived sexual harassment. Empathy, strengthen numbers. You're not alone in what you face. We are here for you. What a biblical message that is. You're not alone. Me too. I'm a sinner. I'm here for you. I don't have all the answers, but I'm here for you. Empathy, strength in numbers. Little wonder why that was such an explosive and powerful movement. Church, let's see that. Let's see the biblical mandate underneath it and say, I'm broken. Me too. I'm not perfect. Me too. I'm a sinner, me too. And yet, I am called to another way of living. I'm called to holiness. Let me tell you about the one who came in to my mess, gave me eyes to see, gave me ears to hear, found me when I was lost, washed me clean. When you enter into someone else's mess, it's a beautiful opportunity to point them to the one who can wash us clean. Let me conclude with this. Why do we do this? Why are, to, why are we to be on mission? Why are we to be willing and eager to enter into other people's mess and be vulnerable before them? Very simply, this is how Christ loves us. This is what he did when he descended to the earth, when he entered in dwelt among us, pitched his tent among his people. He came to us. He shared himself with us to the point of death. We could not save ourselves. We had to be saved from outside. He did not wait until we cleaned ourselves up before he came in. He entered into our mess, got covered in it so that we may be washed clean. And so we're not doing anything new. We're following the example of Jesus who loves us in this way. We're following the example of Paul, the way he loved the Thessalonians. We're merely following what the way in which that we've already been loved. We're not doing anything new. It's simple, but it's not easy. Preaching the gospel to ourselves. Preach the gospel as we share ourselves. We love the people in front of us. Holy Spirit, be with us. Let's pray. Spirit, we do need your help. Remind us of who we are in Christ. Preach the gospel to us. Give us those affections. Help us to be earnest as we're on mission that we speak from a place of humility, speak from a place of love, also integrity, honesty. We are broken, but we know the one who saves us, who saved us. Stir in us those affections, Father to be part of your great commission locally. 
as we church plant, but also internationally as well. Receive all the glory, for you are worthy. And we pray this in your name. Amen.